Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our worship through the hearing and receiving of God's word this morning. There was a couple and they were having struggle, so they went to the doctor and the doctor suggested that they should write everything down. It would be very helpful for them in their relationship. <clears throat> so they went home and the wife said to the husband, I'd like a bowl of ice cream. She says, I think you should write this down. He says, no, 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 I don't need to write it down. I heard what you said. You want a bowl of ice cream. She says, okay, I want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream on it. He, she says, I really think this time you should write it down. No, 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 I don't need to write it down. I got it. I heard what you said. You want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream on top. She says, I want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top. I really, really think you should write it down this time as the doctor had told us. He says, no, 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 no. I, I don't need to write it down. I got this. You want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top. So he goes to the kitchen and he takes an unusual amount of time in there, about 30 minutes. He comes back and he hands her a plate of eggs and bacon. And she looks at the plate and then she looks at him and she says, where's the toast? <laughs> some, some research has shown that within an hour of receiving information, you will forget up to 56% of it. Within one day, you will forget up to 66% of the information you heard. And within six days, you will forget up to 75% of the information you heard. How discouraging is that? So when the Bible seeks to remind us of something, you can see why we need it. Because we can be quite forgetful people. In fact, the theme of remembering is a very rich biblical theme in scripture, if you look at the Old Testament, I did a quick brief survey and I found what felt like a dozen like that. And that wasn't even the whole Testament. God constantly, consistently reminds his people of things in the old covenant. He says, remember my Sabbath day to keep it holy. God told them, remember how I delivered you. The word redeemed you from Egypt. Remember what I did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Remember who gives you the land. Remember me, the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Remember the covenant I have made with you. Remember the miracles and the judgments. And it goes on and on. God consistently rem reminding his people to remember him generation after generation. We get into the New Testament, the new covenant. Jesus does the same thing. John chapter 15, he reminds, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And one of the major ones, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we take communion in remembrance of the sacrificial death of Jesus for us until he comes again. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Peter joins in this rich biblical theme of remembrance, and he's going to encourage us to remember. Last week in 2 Peter chapter 1, the first 11 verses, we learned that we want to supply our faith with the moral qualities of Christ for two major reasons. It makes you productive you bear fruit because of these things, and it also protects you from stumbling or falling away from following our Lord. This week and the rest of chapter one, Peter is going to give us another reason why we want to supply our faith with the moral qualities of Christ. And it's grounded in something you may never have thought, I wouldn't have thought it, the transfiguration of Jesus. And today we're going to learn this, the transfiguration of Jesus, it reminds us to be like him because we will see him again. This is one of the more challenging 
message statements I've given you because I really need to unpack it. So turn with me, please, to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 together. Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, and we pick up from last week. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? The ones he spoke of in verses five, six, and seven. There were seven qualities he gave last week that we went through, that we memorized, and we're all experts on at this point. He says, I intend always to remind you of these seven qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is Peter intent on doing? Reminding them into the future over and over again of these qualities that he pointed out last week in verses five, six, and seven. And you might feel like this. Yes, Peter, we heard you the first time. Can we move on? And Peter's like, "Mm, you don't need to move on. I actually need to stop and I need to remind you. I need to remind you because I'm about to go the way of all the earth. As Jesus has shown me, I'm going to pass away. And I want you to be able to make memory of these things after I'm gone. In other words, we need to have these things so much in our hearts, in our minds, that after we leave Sunday service and our pastors or leaders are not around, our apostles are not here anymore to tell us that we can make memory of these qualities so that we can actually live them in our life. Memorizing scripture is a wonderful thing. Amen? You know what's even better? Living according to it and bearing fruit by the word. Remember what James says. Don't just be hearers. We want to be doers. And that is a growth for all of us. We all need God's grace in that. So I'm going to imitate Peter and I'm going to remind you of the qualities he gave you last week. I will briefly do it, at least at first. So if you want to look at your Bibles, go back to verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. To our faith, remember faith is the source of where all this is happening and coming from. Because we've already been saved by the power and the calling of God, to our faith, we now have these seven virtues. The first one is virtue. What is virtue? It is excellent character that is worthy of praise. On the screen, you should see it on the, on the PowerPoint, guys. Go ahead. There you go. Excellent character that is worthy of praise of praise. The next one here is knowledge. This is likely, well, let me go back to to virtue real quick. It's the same character quality from verse three that's described of God. The excellence of Christ in which he has called us, we imitate that going this direction and that takes us away from the corrupted desire in which we were in. Remember, we've escaped the corruption of the sinful flesh. We've escaped that sinfulness that just binds us and wants to make us do all these things. And we are now partaking in the divine nature. The second one he gives here is knowledge. Knowledge probably of the will of God as revealed in Jesus. God reveals himself. We meditate and contemplate that revelation and we are blessed because of that knowledge. The next one is self-control. Self-control is restraining sinful desires. 
We realize it's not in control of us. We align our will with God's will. And before it even happens, we've already made our decision. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to cross the line. I'm not going to do it. I already know the answer before it happens. After self-control, we have steadfastness. This is standing fast, standing strong in the place of difficulty. You will be tested in your faith. It is a guarantee. Unless you believe right before you die, then you might get out of that. But that's not a game I'd encourage you to play. You will be tested in your faith. There will be doubts that will come. There will be loss in your life. There will be false teaching, immoral behavior. All these things will draw you and say, come be a part of it. No, we are steadfast. We don't move from the narrow way, which is belief in Jesus. After steadfast, he says, godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is reflecting the character of God. It's that simple. Brotherly love is creating an environment where people feel welcome and loved as if they were family, which we are in Christ. And lastly, love. Love is giving so someone else benefits. I'm giving for your benefit so you gain without expecting anything in return. I highly value you and I want to show you that value by giving to you for your benefit. At the risk of being annoying, I'm going to remind you again. This time though, I'm going to do it with illustrations only. So we have virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is a headlamp that is turned on full bright. Knowledge, what is knowledge? Knowledge is an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> I wanted a garden of fruit trees, but I couldn't find a picture, but you get the idea. Self-control is a drawbridge, the last checkpoint before something leaves your castle, leaves you. Steadfastness is a buoy that is anchored in the middle of the ocean. The waves are crazy, the wind is blowing, but you're going nowhere because you are fastened to our hope, which is Jesus Christ. Next, we have godliness. Godliness is the moon reflecting the sun. Brotherly love is chain links all linked together. Love is watering someone else's garden. At the risk of being obnoxious, I'm going to remind you again. This time I'm going to do it with examples from the life of Jesus. Watch how real it gets. What is virtue? Virtue is Jesus forgiving Peter after denying him three times. Knowledge, Luke chapter two, I believe the last verse, Jesus grew in knowledge. He grew in stature and in favor with God and with men. Self-control, Jesus stood before Roman soldiers who one by one took turns and popped him across the face with an open hand. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have whooped them all up so bad with just the word of his mouth. And yet he stood there, he took it, and he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. If we can be like Christ, can you endure something like that? That feels like, I don't know about that. Jesus, yes, me, I don't know. No, we can actually grow into that type of self-control. I'm not quite there, but by God's grace, We'll all take steps together towards being able to do that. 
Steadfastness is Jesus in the wilderness after 40 days of being hungry and the devil coming and tempting him as a shortcut to the throne. Godliness. Godliness is Jesus going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the people following him, and he sees them and he has what on them? Compassion, because they were people like sheep without a shepherd and they were hungry. And he felt in here for them. That's godliness, reflecting the godly character. Brotherly love. This is Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And love. Take your pick on this one. We'll go for the juggernaut. What is love? He laid down his life for his friends. He gave his life for his people so they could be saved from their sins. These virtues are incredible when you see them through the lens of the life of Christ. We are not there yet, which is why we need to be reminded, why we need to pray and ask for God's grace to develop these in us. And then we take the necessary and we give our effort to bringing these to be a part of our life. Last week, I asked you to pray over one of these. Two to three days by a show of hands. I'm just kidding. We won't do that to you. This week, I'm going to ask you to take that same attribute you chose, that you prayed over, and you think of one or two ways in which you can practically, actually go do it. And you go do it, and you grow in reflecting the image of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Peter reminds us to supply our faith with these incredible virtues. They will make you fruitful, showing the presence and the nature of God, which is what he wants, and they will protect you from getting off track and falling away and getting fumbled up in the world. Peter now is going to transition a little in verse 16, and he's going to bring in a historical event that is going to give us another reason why supplying our faith with these virtues is so important. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Is, is it worth it to become like Jesus? Is this whole Jesus saying, is it for real? Or is it just a bunch of myths that these guys made up and then they decided to share it even though they knew it was a bunch of hocus pocus? It seems that Peter and the apostles were hearing maybe stuff like this. You know what? They're just really good storytellers. They cleverly made this up and they're going around telling it to you, but Jesus ain't coming back. False teachers are probably saying, so you don't need to worry about judgment. You can live however you want. Go ahead, join the party, guys. Come on, what are you waiting for? Peter makes very clear, this is not a story that I made up. This is not a myth. This is something I saw with my own eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Majesty denotes that which is very heavy and impressive in glory. We saw the impressive foremost grandeur of the son of God. And he's gonna describe it to you right now in verse 17. But before we read this verse, why is the transfiguration of Christ so important here? I think it's helpful if I tell you before we actually read it. The transfiguration is going to be a picture of Jesus's coming back. It's a glimpse into the future. 
remember when he has the transfiguration, he hasn't died yet. So when he shows them this transfiguration, it says that he will resurrect, he will ascend to the father and he will return one day. If that's true, there will be judgment. How you live does matter. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, and what did the majestic glory say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven or carried from heaven is the idea. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter now begins to describe the transfiguration. If we were to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see them record it. There's a lot. It's worthy to study on its own. We're not going to study it on its own. We're going to study it through the points that Peter's trying to make from it. But I'll give you a quick recap. recap excuse me. Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 8 that he's going to die. And he's going to rise from the dead. They're not getting it. He tells them, you must take up your cross and you must follow me. After declaring this, he then takes up a core group of disciples, James, John, and Peter. He takes them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. His clothes become dazzling white. They're so intense, Mark tells us that no launderer could make them this white. In other words, this is no human doing. This is something divine going on. And then Jesus is glowing. And then there's Moses and Elijah and they're talking with him. And Peter's like, do you want me to put up some shelter? Should we camp up here? He doesn't know what to say. And then God the Father speaks over the moment. What does Peter tell us about this moment that's important? He tells us kind of two things here. What was said and what happened to Jesus. So honor and glory was given to him. Probably two ideas, honor being what he spoke over him, glory being the transfiguration that actually happened. So we're going to look at it like that. What did God speak over Jesus at this point? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why did God the Father say this? Probably this, because he's showing how the Son is fulfilling Old Testament scriptures. Two Old Testament scriptures at least are in view here. Psalm chapter 2, we have an enthronement ceremony, not adoption, enthronement, where God says to someone, says to his chosen king in Psalm chapter two, I have become your father, today you have become my son. Not adopting you into my family, but enthroning you as the son who's gonna rule in the place of the father. Does that make sense? I hope it does, because that's huge. It goes on to David. David will have a kingdom and his son, and God says, he will become my son and I will become his father. God is not adopting Solomon into the people of God. He's already a part of it. He's an Israelite. He's saying though, is that I'm making him a king and the king will rule as a son in the place approved by the father. When God says, this is my beloved son, what is he saying? This is the king, my chosen king, my son who will rule in the place approved by the father. That's a huge statement that God is saying over him. The second one, this is the one in whom I am pleased, comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse one. Isaiah 42, there is a servant. We don't know who he is, but God says that his soul takes delight. He is pleased in the servant. It's a picture of election. He is choosing him because he's pleased in him. And then he puts his spirit on the servant. And then the servant goes out and proclaims justice to the nations. 
So we have the king, we have the servant brought together in who? Jesus. He's the ruling son who is the king, chosen by God, who will have the spirit poured out on him, and he will go bring forth justice to the nations. This is not a story that Peter made up. This is a historical reality in which God the Father spoke this truth over Jesus himself. And then God gives glory to the son. He transfigures him. Why does God do that? It's a future picture of his powerful, glorious coming and bringing the kingdom of God. Jesus told them when he went up the, trans- up the mount, I'm gonna die for sin. I'm gonna rise from the dead. He shows them the future. And then when he actually dies and rises, they make the connection. Oh, this was a picture of what was gonna happen later on. And if that's true, there's a second coming. If that's true, there's judgment. How you live matters. So we bring it all the way now full circle with Peter. Supplying your faith with the moral qualities of Christ is important. Why? Because the transfiguration shows he's coming back. And if he's coming back, there will be judgment. And if there's judgment, how you live makes a difference for God wants us to be like him. You see, supplying our faith with these qualities, it not only makes you fruitful, it not only protects you from going the wrong way, it helps you stay in line because Jesus will be coming back. The best example I can think of is this. My wife is pregnant. I cannot see our baby girl in her tummy. But if you go in and get a sonogram, especially one of those fancy 3D ones, where it looks like they molded the baby out of clay, how much more real does it get in anticipation of the coming of that baby? That baby's really coming. And so in the same way, they were given a glimpse of Christ. He's really coming back. Are you ready to meet Jesus? God said he was king. God has elected, chosen, and delighted in him. And when he comes back, he will come back to save and to judge. And depending on how you respond to his grace will depend on which side of the coin, which side of the table you will be on. I hope that you would choose faith because he loves you and he has died for your sins so you could be with God for eternity, which you were meant to be. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The transfiguration not only promises a future coming, It also confirms and makes reliable, even more so, the Old Testament scriptures. How does it do that? The Old Testament scriptures promise there will be a day of the Lord. There are many days of the Lord, but there will be one final day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's a time when he comes to rescue and to judge. He will rescue his people who trust in him by faith. He will judge evil and he will put it away for eternity into hell. And I don't want anybody to go there. Here, your friends, your family, nobody. But the news is good, is that he will save those who trust in him. The transfiguration also promises there will be a day of the Lord. 
So it shows us not only that that's going to happen, but it also points us back to the Old Testament scriptures and says they are reliable. Peter says to the people here, you do well to pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament in such a uh, compiled way that we do today. So the Old Testament becomes very much a foundational reference point for them. You will do well because it's a light that is guiding you to keep walking with Christ. Until the day dawns, Christ comes back, the morning star rises in your hearts, which is probably Christ illuminating himself to his people. Peter then goes into this. No prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. A few different viewpoints. I'll give you the one that I think it is. I think the apostle Peter is saying this. Our interpretation of the Old Testament is not coming from us. It does not come from one's own. It came from God. God is, in other words, teaching the apostles how to interpret the Old Testament in light of who? Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings ultimate the key to understanding the Old Testament scriptures and where they were going. And when you add them all up, what do they mean? God gave the apostles understand. I'm so thankful because if it was up to me, I wouldn't have figured it out. I look back at some of the struggles of the Pharisees. Like, I would have been a Pharisee. I would have been, I would have been all of the bad things. I remember being in theology class and we're trying to understand how Jesus is fully man and fully God. And we read one. I'm like, that's it. It's like, you're, her, you're, her, you're heretical. Oh, no, no, it's this one. Nope, that's heretical too. And like, I'm so glad it wasn't me trying to discern these things, but thank God that he does give us proper understanding and interpretation of his scriptures. And he's done it through his apostles. Thank the Lord for that. Peter then gives a final reason here for no prophecy of scripture came by the will of man, but it came from who? God. God not only gives the interpretation, God is the very source. He breathed out these scriptures for us. He enabled men to write them down and he gave the spirit to guide them so they would actually write what he wanted. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a book that is fully from God and it also has fully human touch upon it as well. Why can you trust it? God breathed it out. He enabled men to write it even in their own personality, but he guided them by who? the Holy Spirit to safeguard exactly what he wanted to tell us. God has also given the interpretation of it now through his apostles to us. And God, I believe, has also preserved it for us so we still have it today. God is in charge of this whole process of everything. You may have run into this. How do you really know this is the Bible? Didn't the church get together and decide which, game or which books we want and which ones we don't? Oh, this one looks good. This one doesn't. Let's get rid of it. Is that how it happened? The scriptures are determined by God. They're discovered by man. God breathed them out. God wrote them. God gave interpretation. God preserved them. The church merely discovers them. Do we get to decide what scripture is and what it's not? No, we discover it in the same way that humans have discovered what a diamond is and what a diamond is not. You don't get to decide, oh, this is a diamond. I want $10,000 for it. Give it to me. Like, that's not a diamond. Yes, it is because I, no, we know men have been around long enough to discover, to understand the quality of it and to create even criteria to help other people see it as well. It's the same thing with the early church. It took some time, but by God's grace, they were able to compile and discover and pass along God's word to us. 
I'm going to share with you four things that I think are really helpful, uh, part of the criteria that helped the early church, known as TACO, T-A-C-O. This criteria looks like this. T stands for traditional use. Documents scripture that was widespread, it was longstanding and used within the community, had a very good chance of being God's word. Remember, Paul writes, he's an apostle. Oh, we're gonna get there. Paul writes, Peter writes, John writes. They pass these out to different churches and places. They're not all in one place at one time, but through the traditional widespread longstanding use, they were able to see and discover what was God's word and what wasn't. Now, this is just one criteria. Some false letters and books actually fit into this one, but not the other ones. For example, the Shepherd of Hermes or Didache or First Clement. They had widespread longstanding use, but they lacked one or more of the other things. Therefore, we, just, we recognize this is not God's word. You having fun yet? A stands for apostolicity, which is a fancy word for just saying written by an apostle. We learn what an apostle was, someone who has been chosen by God, given God's word to give to God's people. That's what Peter was. That's what Paul was. That's what John was. And so when we get letters that say Peter, an apostle, a servant of God, we have a very great understanding that this is probably God's word here given to us. Now we have to be careful because later people would write stuff like the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, and it wasn't really from them. It's dated later. It doesn't sound like them. It's, and so we go, okay, this, they weigh it. No, this definitely is not God's word. We can tell. Apostolicity doesn't mean it has to be exactly written by an apostle. It could be written by someone in conjunction with an apostle. For example, we believe Mark probably wrote Mark, which was really the gospel coming from Peter. Luke was not one of the original apostles or an apostle, but Luke writes in conjunction with someone like Paul. If you read the second half of Acts, he talks about we and us and traveling together. Number three, Catholicity. Just to let you know, the word Catholic is not a bad word. Catholic meant when they first came up with it that we are the church, the universal church. Because a gentleman named Marcion came up and he started doing this, not this one, not this one, half of this one, made his own Bible, his own church, his own leaders. So the church was forced to go into a place to tell the world what were their scriptures and who the church really was. So they called themselves the Catholic church. That is the universal church according to all of the witness of the apostles. That's us. Catholic church will take on a different theme later on in church history. But as for Catholicity, it just means letters that have value for the whole church. Sometimes we get letters like 1 Timothy. Oh, is it really? Because it's just kind of written to him. But if you read 1 Timothy, you see there is instruction for the whole church, not just for Timothy. So this was one of the criteria. Another one is orthodoxy. Does it really teach the faith that has been given in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and passed on by the apostles? A lot of them fail here. For example, the Gospel of Thomas says that women must become men in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like something Jesus would say? I feel like even non-Christians would be like, I don't think so. That would be very difficult. In fact, impossible. God created the male and female. That's it. And the criteria is not becoming the opposite gender. The criteria is believing upon who? 
Jesus, our Lord. So when we look at this process, the church took some time, which was good. They recognized so many at first, but over time and doing this and working together, they were able to discover, not determine, what the word of God actually is. And so this now, the word of God, becomes for us our authority, not Pastor Sean, not teacher so-and-so, not church historian, theologian, awesome guy over here from the whatever century. As great as they may be or as right as they may be, our authority is where? Here, not in popes, not in councils, not in creeds, even if some of those may be accurate. Our authority for what we need to believe to be saved and how we live our lives is found where? In the word of God. So we are people of the book who believe that God has spoken, enabled men to write it down, guided them by the spirit, and we believe he has preserved it for us today. Amen? There's a lot more with that too, which is the fun part of our doctrine classes. And so you can come to those after church one of these days, or you can look them up on the app because we've done more doctrine of scripture. So there's more there you can look at if you'd like. But putting this all together, What's the point that Peter's getting at? We want to supply our faith with the moral qualities of Christ. It makes you productive, bears the fruit God wants to see, it protects you from falling away, and it's grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? What do we learn? The transfiguration of Jesus, the historical truth of it, the second coming of it, the fact that it confirms the Old Testament, the transfiguration reminds us to be like him because you will do what? You will see him again. Are you ready to see him? If you are not ready to see him, I pray that in your heart, you would get on your knees and you would say, yes, Lord, save me. I am yours. Forgive me of my sin. I believe in you. I need you. For those of you who are saved, may you thank the Lord for his gracious rescuing of you. And may you say, Lord, I need help. I need some help, some effort, some diligence to become like you. What a blessing. Remember those examples we gave of the virtues from the life of Jesus? You can be like that. Isn't that great? You have great potential to become like Christ and to shine the headlamp, to be the buoy that doesn't move, to eat from the fruit trees, to sit with sinners and tax collectors, to water the garden of the dry and weary in this world. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray and let's ask for God's grace to live according to his word. Gracious Father, thank you for giving us the perfect example in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us the grace today to take one more step to becoming like him. Bless us with the effort, the diligence, and at the heart level, the love and the desire to want to be like that. Our spouses, Lord, they need us to become more like Christ. Our kids, they need us to become more like Christ. Our neighborhood, our churches, our businesses, and all the other people we come into contact. And we pray that as you make us to be more like Christ, it would be for your glory, that your light would shine, that people would see that, and they would long for the light. They would thirst for the living water. And Lord, you would give it to them. Help us, Lord, to be like you, to be better witnesses and forgive us when we're not. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, amen.